four found shot in a Richmond home. They are good people. Yeah. yeah, always they have been good people. IHIT tries to unravel the mystery of what happened. Child care in crisis. Moms with kids under five are tired and we're running out of options. Parents push for better guidance to make daycare safer. And a homeless veteran gets an upgrade. I've been independent all most of my life. Living out of his car, how friends are rallying to make him much more comfortable. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Residents in a normally quiet Richmond neighborhood are shocked after a grisly discovery Tuesday night. Four people dead inside a home, all of them shot. Krista Dow is live in Richmond with what we know so far and what some of the neighbors are saying. Krista. Sophie, well, there is shock in this community here tonight. We spoke with a neighbor who lives next door, and he tells us the family is a family of four, and they actually live in the top right of this fourplex. He says they're a quiet family, but one that didn't cause any problems. What residents say was a quiet and safe street in this Richmond neighborhood has now become the focal point of a grisly crime scene. Four people were shot and killed inside this fourplex. I'm actually shocked, like, it, it happened around this neighborhood. RCMP were called to this home on Garden City Road near Audlin Road at around 7 p.m. on Tuesday. Neighbors had reported suspicious activity. When Mounties arrived, they found four people dead, believed to have died Monday. Neighbors tell Global News a family of four lived in the unit for years. A man and woman and their two teenage children, a boy and girl believed to be between 14 and 19 years old. They say they were a quiet family. No, I was, it was shocked. I don't think such an incident could happen in such a family because they are a male family. They are quiet, they have no issues, never had any issues there. Whenever you go, you walk on the back street, you could hear them play pool, the cracking sound of the balls when they are shooting the pool. So, and no incident has ever happened. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team says the shooting is believed to be targeted and there's no risk to the public at this time. For much of the day Wednesday, they continued canvassing the area for clues. The scene is uh, being searched right now and the situation is unfolding, uh, so it's very new to us. We're still gathering information. What we're able to confirm right now is that the four people are known to each other and don't uh, appear to have any connections to the lower mainland gang complex, so the shooting is not related to that. IHIT says the incident appears to be an isolated one, but for those who live next door, it provides little solace knowing who lived there. A family and two kids, those are people who have lived for many years. You lose those lives at one night is not a good thing. Mm. It's very sad. Not only the family, even us as neighbors, we, we, we feel bad. I'm sure. All right, uh, Krista, police are asking the public to come forward with any information. What are they looking for? Uh, Sophie, police are asking anyone who was in this area along Garden City Road on Monday at 7 p.m. or saw some suspicious activity in the area to come forward in hopes that they can provide some answers as to what happened here. Back to you. Krista Dow reporting in Richmond tonight. Krista, thank you. Vancouver police have arrested a man for stabbing a tourist at a downtown Tim Hortons. The victim was stabbed a number of times in a seemingly unprovoked attack. 
As Catherine Urquhart reports, this isn't the suspect's first brush with the law. And a warning, some of the video is disturbing to watch. David Richard Morin is a violent criminal offender with an extensive record. Now the 27-year-old is behind bars, charged with aggravated assault in the recent stabbing at a downtown Vancouver Tim Hortons. This arrest comes after a uh, quite a fast-paced uh, um, investigation that began Saturday morning when this stabbing occurred. On Monday, Vancouver police released this troubling video from the Tim Hortons at Harbour Centre. It showed the suspect lunging at the victim and stabbing him several times. He fled, leaving the 25-year-old man with life-threatening injuries. Following numerous tips, Morin was arrested near Granville and Helmkin on Tuesday. We were able to take him into custody safely with the assistance of the emergency response team. Uh, Mr. Morin was taken to jail. He appeared in court this morning. He's been charged with one count of aggravated assault, and he remains in custody. David Morin has a long history with the law dating back to 2012. Morin was found guilty of sexual assault, assault causing bodily harm, and unlawful confinement for a violent incident in 2017. He held a woman in a Prince George hotel room, threatened her with a hatchet, and sexually assaulted her. In 2021, he was wanted on a Canada-wide warrant after failing to follow conditions of his release. We hope that this arrest uh, does uh, restore uh, a sense of safety to uh, people who were feeling less safe as a result of this. Morin remains in custody pending his next court appearance. The man who was stabbed, a visitor from Mexico, is still in hospital and should survive. Police still believe he was the victim of an unprovoked stranger attack. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Turning to COVID-19 in our province now in the latest numbers. We have 949 people in hospital. 136 of those patients are in the ICU. There have been 21 more deaths from complications of the virus. And there are currently just over 30,000 active cases in BC, with 2,086 of those cases new. Let's bring in Keith Baldry to talk more about those numbers. We'll start with the obvious uh, shocking statistic, Keith, and that's a lot of deaths. Yes, that's a very high number, 21. But we have seen instances in the past, Sophie, where deaths are not necessarily recorded and reported on the day that they occur. That sometimes happens in long-term care homes. So this could be a case of just delayed reporting over a period of days. And in fact, it's likely that. So it's very unusual to have such a high number in one day. And again, it's usually elderly people. We're seeing long-term care patients still dying, even though they're fully vaccinated because they have underlying health conditions. I can tell you, though, of the 21, two people were in their 40s. Oh, yikes. All right. Well, we'll hopefully find out more about those numbers uh, in the mm -hmm. next briefing. Keith, ICU numbers are down. That is a good thing. But what do we know about who is in critical care? Yeah, it's a reminder again, the biggest risk of getting the most severe outcome of getting COVID-19 is your age and if you're vaccinated or not. And today's age breakdown in the ICU bears out that, that, uh, that statistic. So again, very few people under the age of 40 in the ICU, just nine people. But as people start to age, you can see the numbers start going up significantly. 60 to 79, 79 people, 31 of those people unvaccinated and 80 over 80, 13 people, only three unvaccinated there. But again, it's that 40 to 
80-year-old age group, Sophie, that is really making the bulk of the numbers in the ICU right now. And it's interestingly, you see the bottom number there, 56 unvaccinated people. 41% of the cases are unvaccinated, but the unvaccinated comprise just less than 10% of the population. So less than 10% of the population having almost half the most severe illnesses in our hospitals in BC. Yeah, something to think about for sure. Thank you, Keith. All right. A hospital in Boston has sparked controversy by rejecting a patient for a heart transplant because he's unvaccinated against COVID-19. Some wonder whether BC should follow suit, taking the COVID vaccine status of potential transplant recipients into consideration. Amara Gahi has more. My son has gone to the edge of death to stick to his guns. His son is hospitalized, a 31-year-old who is also no longer at the front of the line to receive a transplant for his failing heart because of a decision to refuse the COVID vaccine. It's his body. It's his choice. What is happening in that Boston hospital has sparked nationwide debate. So if you only have so many organs and you have to decide who's going to be first in line to get them, um, trying to take a look at, is this somebody who's likely to have a substantially long, healthy life? Or is this somebody who's going to be at really, really high risk of an early death and then essentially wasting that organ? According to BC Transplant, COVID-19 vaccination is not yet a requirement for pre-transplant patients. As of now, it is only a strong recommendation. This despite numbers from the province that show transplant recipients are among the groups most likely to be hospitalized with the virus. There are a lot of factors that go into transplant and uh, uh, I know that our transplant committee and the immunization committee will continue to look at these issues. It's not required now, but boy, everybody recommends it. Health Minister Adrian Dick says overwhelmingly people in need of transplants in this province are vaccinated. And they've been prioritized from the start. I definitely recall ensuring that all of my vaccinations were up to date. That that was a requirement. And hear this from someone who has been a heart transplant recipient for 21 years now. So it really is a lifelong condition and one in which you're required to take daily and powerful and often potent immunosuppressive medications. So this is medication that really lowers the body's defense against infections. Her encouragement to anyone who may be in the rare position of needing a transplant but still unvaccinated is to trust the sure hands of science and vaccines created by those in the same profession as the surgeons they will one day rely on. It's kind of against his basic principles. He doesn't really believe in it. Emadagahi, Global News. Well, if you think back to how you felt about potentially catching COVID-19 this time last year, Chances are you feel differently about it now. A new poll shows most Canadians now believe their symptoms would be manageable. But experts caution that's not the case for everyone. And they say it might be time for new messaging around the virus. Kylie Stanton reports. Approaching two years into the pandemic, Canadians are feeling a lot of things. But new data out of the Angus Reid Institute shows the vast majority aren't especially concerned with catching the Omicron variant. I think this is a really significant finding just in terms of the way people are approaching this virus. Uh, it, it is certainly with less fear. Nearly half believe if they caught the virus, they would have serious but manageable symptoms, while another 36% believe their symptoms would be mild. 
On the other hand, relatively few are worried that an infection would result in hospitalization, just 12%, while only 3% fear it could be fatal. Yeah, no, not too concerned. I'm not surprised to hear that. I feel like I've heard that a lot before. That's a massive shift in the mindset from just a year ago, and the opinion appears to be spreading as quickly as the virus itself. Everybody knows somebody who got it or they themselves had it. And uh, for the most part, it's been pretty not very pleasant. It's been nasty, but they got through it. And so that, I think, is informing a lot of this change in opinion. And so it may not be surprising to learn that 40% of Canadians now think it's time to end all restrictions, creating yet another challenge for public health officials to find a way of striking a balance between the severity of the illness and the rules necessary to ensure a functioning health care system. We have to keep repeating the messaging, making sure we're clear about what we're saying and let the data do the talking for us too. There is also concern the words mild and manageable require context, particularly when it comes to the 94% of unvaccinated Canadians who say an infection for them would not be worrisome. That is absolutely not true, and there's plenty of evidence of that from around the world right now. But where there is evidence lacking is the long-term impacts of Omicron and the other variants that will inevitably follow. Despite the findings, the pandemic is not over yet. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The provincial government is holding a town hall meeting tonight to discuss the challenges surrounding childcare during the pandemic. The sector has been very vocal about concerns from the beginning and even more so as Omicron spreads in the community. Richard Zussman has more. They have felt forgotten. Parents with their kids in childcare. Because those kids are under five, they aren't eligible for a COVID vaccine. And now we're largely not eligible be tested for the virus. It's a heavy burden for parents to have to pay for childcare and sometimes multiple childcare settings when we can't have access to the services and we can't work all at the same time. On Wednesday night, the province will be hosting a town hall for providers and families. Before that event, the government announcing 250,000 rapid tests for the sector. But they won't be for kids, just for childcare providers. Shine and they shine and This they on top of sweeping changes last week to the COVID-19 policies in childcare facilities. COVID-19 positive kids and vaccinated adults must stay away for five days, while unvaccinated positive adults must remain isolated for 10. Close contacts, either kids or staff, can attend while symptom-free. And facilities should not be closed unless directed by a medical health officer. Moves not supported by everyone. I I know 10 days is really hard on parents um, to keep their kids home if they are a close contact or they have a positive COVID test, heaven forbid. Um, but it keeps everybody else safe and it keeps the care centers open. The policy shift and lack of testing is leading to some hitting the breaking point. Families struggling through assessing their risk and contemplating their own futures. Moms with kids under five are tired and we're running out of options. And um, certainly so many friends of mine are, are, have left the workforce or are thinking about it because we want to protect our kids and suddenly daycares don't feel safe anymore. And although the guidelines change for these child cares before the town hall, government says it will be watching feedback closely and could be making additional changes.
we understand this is a really challenging time. People are feeling tired, frustrated. An exhaustion only compounded by a worry their kids are not safe in a place where they spend so much time. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, forget Chernobyl, forget Fukushima. There may be a nuclear solution to Canada's energy needs. Wind and solar are great, but there's a new twist on an old technology that one SFU researcher says must be considered to meet necessary climate targets. That's next on the NewsHour. A vandal hits a very special memorial to children who suffered at a North Shore residential school. That's later on the news hour. And the community fundraiser to give a Squamish veteran a new home on wheels. Coming up. Right now, though, a new report on how B.C. will meet its growing demand for electricity is making a controversial recommendation. SFU researchers say B.C. will have to double or even triple its electricity production in less than 30 years. One of its proposed solutions, nuclear power. Ted Chernecki reports. B.C.'s Site C dam in the north has more than doubled in price. $16 billion is the latest estimate. A new study from Simon Fraser University is suggesting we can't build enough of these, and now's the time to think differently. Society's sort of perceptions of things and understanding how big of a problem this is has shifted this year, and I think that's an opportunity. If everything went electric, from industry to home heating to transportation, it is estimated BC would need the equivalent of 20 to 29 more Site C's. Not going to happen, which is why it might be time to go nuclear. The future of the world's energy is carbon-free. By 2050, net zero is the goal. Ontario, where 18 of our 19 can-do reactors are located, is considering buying an American-designed replacement reactor. Now, if this is how you picture a nuclear power plant, it's time to think differently. They're called SMRs, small modular reactors. They can fit on a football field and are somewhat cheaper. It takes a long time to build any of these. People have been talking about these small modular reactor de- uh, reactors for decades. He says the reason no one's built one is simple. Nuclear these days is running at around $160 per megawatt hour on average, whereas uh, solar and uh, wind are in the 30s, right? So about five times as much. But you have to look at the other costs that are associated with solar and wind. Storage. Because the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't necessarily shine where we want it. Better, he says, is to connect with other power systems. Because the wind isn't right where we need it, and so we have to build massive transmission lines. So, for example, Alberta has a whole bunch of wind. BC has hydro. We could combine those systems by building a very large transmission line. This year, Germany will shut down the last three of its nuclear reactors. The decision was made about 10 years ago after the Fukushima reactor meltdown in Japan. There is no way you can rule out accidents like what happened in Fukushima. Fukushima was a pretty small reactor. But the SFU study suggests technology has improved and some of the meltdown fears are unwarranted. And everyone agrees getting to carbon neutral will mean multiple solutions. Ted Shernaki, Global News. As mentioned, renewable options like wind and solar power rely on energy storage and so does the electric car market. Thankfully, researchers at UBC Okanagan are on the verge of a battery breakthrough that sounds like it's from Star Trek. Their research combines lithium, a standard agreement in or a standard ingredient in modern batteries, with a byproduct of the mining industry called tellurium. They're hoping to develop a new state-of-the-art battery that'll offer much better storage capacity. 
Ethereum offers much higher electronic conductivity. Therefore, it provides much better performance. They want smaller size batteries, uh, safe solid state batteries, and of course, high capacity so they can travel distance. And that's what it's going to do. We're going to make the batteries smaller, higher capacity so you can travel twice the distance and ultra safe because there's no liquid electrolyte. The researchers hope to start commercializing the new technology on a small scale, at least in about a year from now. Just ahead, a troubling look at spending by the former clerk of the B.C. legislature. He liked to go shopping while on official business, but court is trying to decide if what he did was criminal. And a new study shows men find it harder to bounce back after a breakup. Traffic is steady both ways over here at the Burrard Street Bridge. The Granville Street Bridge is also a great option in and out of downtown. Whatever you do, don't take the Canby Street Bridge. Seismic upgrades and lane closures both ways. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Dewison in the Global Traffic Center. The fraud and breach of trust trial of the former clerk of the B.C. legislature once again today spent a lot of time outlining his shopping trips. Craig James rang up a lot of purchases, claiming them as business expenses. Grace Key has the latest, including a hint of what the defense strategy might be. We got another look at items Craig James bought while on official business abroad, but there were a couple of photos defense honed in on. Many of these items were bought in the UK at various gift shops. There were dozens of these photos submitted as evidence. Commemorative stamps, coins, books, cufflinks, mugs, a ruler, stationery, pens, a golf towel and umbrella. The list goes on and on. But defense did ask the RCMP exhibit officer about a couple of photos. They show boxes with several items in them and they were labeled as protocol gifts. Now that was defined as gifts that could be given for ceremonial purposes to employees or someone visiting for work purposes. Now many of the items were also noted to be unused. The current legislature clerk, Kate Ryan Lloyd, also took the stand defining the role of the clerk. That includes financial management. She also talked about chamber attire. Clothing expenses have also been called into question. Ryan Lloyd will be continuing her testimony and the trial is expected to last for about six weeks. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. Coming up next, on the healing path in Williams Lake. Like my dad went to residential school. You know, what did he see when he was there? Survivors coming to terms with the brutal truth uncovered in the residential school investigation. And what just happened to Canada's mortality rate that hasn't happened since the Second World War? Two lanes north and one south at the Lionsgate Bridge. Just minor delays from north and west Vancouver on the Cloverleaf through mid-span while downtown traffic bunches up in the causeway. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. We're learning more about the extent of abuse at the site of the former St. Joseph's Mission Residential School. An investigation by the Williams Lake First Nation revealed as many as 93 unmarked graves. And now, as Neetu Garcha reports, the community is reflecting on the trauma experienced by survivors and their families while looking toward the future. But first, a warning. This story might be triggering for some viewers. 
At the Williams Lake First Nation, a sacred fire continues to burn into a second day. We'd like to honor all of our families of the people who attended residential school. Honoring and supporting those who are reliving the trauma they faced at the St. Joseph's Mission Residential School, now torn down and the site the subject of an investigation that so far has found 93 possible unmarked burials. And this is just scratching the surface, says Cook P. Willie Sellers. My dad went to residential school. You know, what did he see when he was there? No matter how many times we talk about it, it doesn't seem to get any easier. A third-generation survivor of this institution, Jacqueline Sawan, shared some of what she endured there as a child. Too emotional to speak beyond a written statement telling Global News, I had blocked all of this, but hearing it all again, I remember. I seen a priest with young girls, seen abuse. I experienced the abuse. The food would have maggots totally rotten. The milk was curdled. I didn't share this part of my life with anyone most of my life. I'm 55 years old now. My wife's side, all of her family members had went there. Hyman Jobin is grateful for the nation's announcement Tuesday and what it may mean for helping improve outcomes for future generations of Indigenous children, a disproportionate number of whom end up in foster care. Our families, kids, we've ministry has apprehended them and this is the third time. Following the announcement, the Silco team national government issuing a statement highlighting this month marks the two-year anniversary of Bill C-92, recognizing Indigenous people's right to legislate child welfare. Jobin says this is what more equitable treatment in the foster care system hinges on and should be one way to honour those who never came home. I feel these kids are coming back today to shine light to fight for these kids that are apprehended today by the ministry. In a statement, BC's Ministry of Children and Family Development says it's working to ensure timely funding support for Indigenous families, acknowledging there is more work to do, but noting 65% more children are staying connected to their families and cultures since legislative changes were introduced in 2018, adding the province has the lowest number of Indigenous children and youth in care today since the year 2000. Neetu Garcha, Global News, at the Williams Lake First Nation. Now, we understand these stories may be triggering, but there is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free and 24 hours a day. You can speak in confidence, 1-800-721-0066. And a disturbing discovery in North Vancouver where a memorial dedicated to residential school students has been damaged. The carving is located on the corner of Forbes and 6th Street. And someone has ripped the arm off. The memorial is dedicated to the survivors and victims of the former St. Paul's Residential School. The North Vancouver School District also uses the memorial as a learning tool for students. One of the artists behind the work posted on social media to say it's upsetting, especially in light of yesterday's announcement in Williams Lake. Life expectancy took a dive in 2020. Statistics Canada says it is the largest single-year decline this country has seen since national vital statistics were collected more than 100 years ago. Aaron MacArthur has the reasons why. Cases, hospitalizations, vaccinations, deaths. There have been so many numbers, it's hard to make sense of them day to day. And while it's been obvious COVID-19 has been having an impact, just how big has been hard to pin down. 
Earlier this month, StatsCan crunched the data from 2020. The results are eye-opening. We've seen a decline of more than half a year in life expectancy in Canada. In 2020, 21,000 more people died in Canada than the year before. COVID-19 was the third leading cause of death. The extra deaths attributed to the virus have led to the largest decline in Canadian life expectancy in 100 years. In 2019, the average lifespan in this country was 82.3 years. In 2020, it declined by more than half a year to 81.7. It's very dramatic. By my calculation, I think it's about seven months, which is really interesting because for quite a very long time now, we've been picking up approximately six months of life expectancy every year. The pandemic was only part of the equation in 2020. Mortality rates increased across all age groups. People between 20 and 39 saw the largest increase in mortality in more than two decades. But only 50 deaths were attributed to COVID-19. Instead, drug overdoses played an outsized role. Across the country, 4,604 people died from accidental poisonings, more than 1,700 of those happening in B.C. It's no longer a public health emergency. This is a public health crisis. We've lost more people to drug toxicity than we have to COVID-19. While Canada's decline in average life expectancy was substantial, it was about half the decline in the U.S. in the same year. The pandemic has now stretched out well past the data collected in 2020, and the effects on demographics will be felt for years to come. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And one final note on health. New research out of the University of British Columbia finds men are at an increased risk of anxiety, depression, and suicide when relationships break down. The study interviewed 47 men in Canada and Australia about their experiences and discovered many men isolated with their feelings rather than reaching out for help. Several were battling with transitions like bereavement, parenting or infidelity and their primary goal was to avoid conflict. Stereotyped masculinity also played a role in how the men reacted to their broken relationship. There's lots and lots of kind of discourse around when a guy breaks up, um, they'll often use substances to sort of dull some of the emotional pain that goes with that. There's also instances where we kind of expect the man to um, jump into another relationship quickly to kind of make amends for what he's feeling uh, about the breakup of the relationship. So we see, we do see that a lot. However, the study also suggested that following a breakup, men did engage a variety of resources to address their mental health needs. It's also believed that the isolation and disruption caused by COVID-19 restrictions has an additional impact on an already stressful time. Just ahead, Squamish rallies around an elderly veteran. I ran into him and, hey Orville, how you doing? He's been living out of his car for weeks, but he's about to get a much better sleep. And in sports, the Canucks' new GM bringing some Scandinavian flair to the front office. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. 
The Bank of Canada has decided not to raise its key interest rate despite mounting pressure to curb inflation. Global's Anne Gaviola has more on what this decision and looming rate hikes mean for household budgets. Interest rates need to increase to control inflation. The central bank is setting the stage for hikes that could come during its next interest rate announcement on March 2nd. Bucking market expectations of a 25 basis point hike now, the central bank is keeping its key interest rate at emergency levels, where it's been since the start of the pandemic at just 0.25%. But future rate hikes will likely take time to tame inflation. Supply chain uh, disruptions are still going to uh, inflate uh, prices, even though we're going to see uh, uh, domestic interest rate rise. Many Bay Street economists expect a total of four rate hikes this year. Those may dampen wage inflation in this tight labor market and force the hot housing market to chill, though the head of Royal LePage doesn't expect prices to cool for long. We have an acute shortage of housing in this country. It really is serious. I was encouraged by the number of homes that were built in 2021, but we can't keep our uh, take our eye off the ball. A pending rate hike, or a few, will hit holders of variable rate debt first. Let's look at the impact on a typical five-year variable rate mortgage on a $720,000 home, which is the national average. A 25 basis point hike means the monthly payment would go from more than $2,700 to more than $2,800, a difference of $82 a month or nearly $1,000 in a year. Now, some may consider switching from variable rate to fixed, but this mortgage expert says it's still too soon to do that. Most Canadians qualified at a rate that is well above and beyond what they're paying. And I think that many Canadians who have variable rate mortgages are still ahead of their peers with fixed rate mortgages. Bottom line, the Bank of Canada is giving households and institutions a chance to prepare for rate hikes in the coming months. Anne Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at that weather forecast. We got to see some sunshine today, Christy. Boy, was it nice. I tell you, as soon as you broke out of that cloud, you could feel the warmth. And we warmed up to uh, five, six degrees generally. Uh, some areas hit eight degrees, but still in that cloud cover, a lot of areas only warmed up to about three degrees. So it was a tough one for some areas, but sure was a big turnaround today. And we're hoping for the same tomorrow. Here- Photos, this one from Maple Ridge from down in that fog and cloud. Melissa, thank you for sharing that one with us. And this is up above the cloud from Heritage Mountain. And look at this one looking out over Vancouver with that fog cloud breaking up. And another one from Craig showing that as well. Uh, This is looking out from Chilliwack Mountain. Thank you to David for that one. And look at this. This is what we call either hair ice or some people call it frost flowers. Either way, basically when you get a dead log or twig, it has moisture inside. And when it gets so cold, that moisture starts to freeze and gets pushed out of these little cracks in the log. Uh, this one from Anmore and look another one from Souk. I love these. I've never actually seen it in real life and I wish that I could. We have this big upper level ridge and that's keeping us, uh, keeping this inversion. It's been with us for about four to five days. We still have another couple of days on the way before a final change will happen over the weekend. So if you're missing the sunshine or maybe if you're missing the rain, I don't know, uh, that is going to happen over the weekend. In the meantime, it 
expect valley fog in the interior. Coastal regions will again see that fog redevelop overnight, be thick through the morning hours, and we hope to break out of it in the afternoon with rain expected on Saturday night. Sophie, I'll leave you with tonight's Central Windows weather window from Telqua, which is just east of Smithers. Mary sending us that. Um, we've had some stunning scenery with this beautiful uh, sunset. So uh, mm-hmm. thank you to Mary for that one. Uh, Telqua won tonight's sunset um, mm-hmm. win uh, prize. Yeah, no kidding. It looks mm-hmm. like the sky's on fire. Thanks, Christy. Gorgeous. Okay, Squire joins us now with sports and a look ahead to a uh, new man in the front office for the Canucks. That is true. Uh, Jim Rutherford is not the only former Penguin management type to join the Canucks recently. Assistant GM Derek Clancy was in Pittsburgh, and so is Canucks' new GM, Patrick Alvine. Him and I worked together for seven years in Pittsburgh, and I really learned to respect him. Alvine worked his way up from scout to Penguins' assistant GM under Rutherford. He loves the fact he's getting a chance to work with Rutherford again. Also coming up, the GoFundMe that helped a homeless veteran get back on his feet and how others will benefit too. Squire is here now. We got to hear from the new guy today, Squire. Yes, we did. And uh, since the late 1970s, there has been a very symbiotic relationship between the Vancouver Canucks and the country of Sweden. If Rogers ever drops the arena sponsorship, the Canucks should really get IKEA to put their name on the arena. They often haven't gotten it wrong when the Canucks bring in players from Sweden, and now they have a general manager from that country as well. I think it's a it's a big day for for um, you know S- Swedish hockey and, and uh, uh, European part of the of the game here. It's fitting that Patrick Elvin, the NHL's first Swedish general manager, is the twelfth GM in the history of the Vancouver Canucks. Over the years and decades, Scandinavian players have starred for the Canucks: Thomas Gradin, Patrick Sundstrom, Marcus Naslund, who sits second all time in Canucks goals scored, Matthias Oland, and of course Sweden's greatest gift to Canucks nation. The Sedin twins. I think Vancouver has been extremely fortunate to have a lot of good uh, European players. I definitely, I definitely want to have them on board here. Um, get an opportunity to to uh, meet them out in Vancouver um, for a two-hour lunch, and um, I was really, really impressed with them as as, as persons. Um, what they talked about in terms of culture and identity and standards, uh, that's something that I truly believe in. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited to continue to have them on board here. And, and uh, I really envision them to be a big part of this franchise moving forward. And moving the Canucks franchise forward is what's needed. But how is the question? In his 16 years with the Penguins organization, Alvin was a scout, the Pens director of amateur scouting, and most recently, assistant general manager. He was a part of three Stanley Cup winning teams. Now with Rutherford once again by his side mentoring him, he'll try to do the same in Vancouver. You know, obviously, you know, we want to play a, a fast and skilled game. Um, and I think uh, in order uh, to be successful, you 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 got to be able to find players uh outside the first round there's some good things going on here we have to uh we have to add more players to get to where we want to get to and that's something that's going to have to be decided here leading up to the 
trading deadline. How do we go about that? And we got to figure out a way to get a little cushion on the cap. It's always difficult, but being up against the cap and a team that's not in the playoffs at this point in time is not a good thing. So some big decisions are coming up. But now that we've added more people to hockey ops, we're now in a position that uh, stronger position to make those decisions. It is amazing how much has changed with the Canucks in less than two months. Um, Spencer Martin's time with the Vancouver Canucks is not over yet. Made 47 saves against the Oilers last night. It's good he's still around. He will uh, go on the road with the Canucks to Winnipeg tomorrow because Thatcher Demko still remains in COVID protocol. Uh, Demko was on the ice uh, this morning with only guys that have had COVID before. Uh, That's what he was allowed to do. And uh, but he's still in the protocol, so he's not making the initial part of the trip unless he gets out of protocol, um, you know, before before the trip is over. So he's at home and uh, we'll be taking uh, Martin uh, Halak will be meeting us there and uh, Di Pietro will be coming along with us probably on the taxi squad. Canada is first in their uh, final World Cup qualifying tournament. Tomorrow, they begin three games in a week. They'll be down in Honduras. They won't have Alfonso Davies. He is out because of COVID. Honduras is last in the tournament right now, but they can be a very dangerous team at home. They have, they have nothing to lose. I think they have to go out there and try to get the maximum points. So I think they're going to come out uh, all guns blazing. And uh, I think we just have to keep to the game plan and remain solid and don't give them nothing in the early parts of the game. And uh, we should uh, maintain that. And if we start off the game uh, on the front foot and solid, we'll be fine throughout and we'll dominate. Felix Oje Aliassime gave Daniel Medvedev all he could handle this morning at the Australian Open. Look at this point. This is brilliant tennis from both. Oje Aliassime would win this point and he actually won the first two sets. Yeah, Medvedev's not fallen for that. Not that, but he's not going to get this. But Medvedev did come back and force it to a fifth set. And he came through. The number two seed, which is really the number one seed without Djokovic there. But uh, give Oje Aliassime credit. He gave all Medvedev could handle. There you go. What a match. All right, thank you, Squire. Just ahead, he's served his country, and now his community is taking care of him. Help for a homeless veteran, next. joined the military as a teenager and proudly served his country. So when 81-year-old Orville Larson fell on hard times, the whole community rallied around him. Larson was living in his car in Squamish, unaware that a GoFundMe was launched to help him out. And as John Hua shows us, that act of kindness will help others too. To most, it's a forest green Saturn sitting idle on the edge of a Squamish parking lot. For Orville Larson, this driver's seat doubles as his library, pantry, and bedroom. I put the seat back. I got all my stuff here. 
This is what I own. This is it. The 81-year-old veteran admits he's had better days. Last summer, he was evicted from a property in the Squamish Valley. Most of his possessions stolen from storage. I take it as it comes. I don't complain. Then, a chance encounter with a few fellow veterans. Men who may not have served directly with Larson, but are nonetheless his brothers. Now brought together by circumstance. Oh, we can do right by this guy, because that's just the right thing to do. Somebody that's 81 years old can't be living in his car. An online fundraiser was set up with hopes of collecting about $5,000. Now totaling more than 30 grand. Every little bit helps because everybody can contribute something and it's awesome. Like the, the whole community just come together here. It's just mind-blowing to see this thing happen. A van has already been purchased and whether it's businesses offering services and parts or complete strangers delivering cash, it seems the entire community is on a mission to help this humble man. I didn't know that. I didn't know I was that popular. <laughs> in hopes of preserving Larson's sense of independence, the plan is to convert this van into a comfortable living space. A basic conversion just to get him, you know, into a, a bed where he can lay down, you know, a stove, a sink, have running water, the basic needs. Larson's only key request, keep most of the money raised and spend it on others in need. What we want to do now is help other people. This brotherhood, just the beginning of a new Vans for Veterans initiative, inspired by someone who might be used to having so little, but always looks for more ways to serve. John Hua, Global News. Orville's a hunter and a fisherman and just wants to live off the land and independently when he gets that van on the road. But great job by everybody involved. All right, last word on weather before we go. Sure, it's getting cold, that's for sure. So we'll drop down to about zero degrees across the region. Watch for a bit of ice tomorrow morning when you're headed out, maybe a bit of frost across the region and certainly that thick fog. But I am hoping that we'll break out of it by the afternoon and you'll be able to enjoy a little bit of that warmth in the afternoon. And maybe a little bit more of nature's cotton candy, which you showed us earlier in the weather window, which looked so cool. All right, thanks very much, everybody. Yeah, thanks for hair watching. Ice. Hair ice, that's what it is. Good night, all. Mm-hmm.